Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. How'd you know it was me? Same caller ID. Oh, what's it say? Linda Tripp. It does? Yeah. I have an unpublished phone, the idiot. The great story here is this vast right-wing conspiracy that has been conspiring against my husband since the day he announced for president. May of 91, Bill Clinton harassed me on the job and then basically told me, let's keep this between ourselves. No sexual relationship with this young woman. There is not a sexual relationship. That is accurate. Hello and welcome to Still Watching, colon, American Crime Story, colon, impeachment. Uh, I am Katie Rich. And I'm Richard Lawson. Uh, and this is the seventh episode of our series on the FX series, American Crime Story Impeachment, which is a recounting of the Bill Clinton impeachment saga and the friendship between Monica Lewinsky and Linda Tripp and everything that led to that whole mess in 1998 that, as we have been discussing for many episodes, we all have varying uh, levels of memories of and now I think know pretty well. Um, if you are new to the series, every season we uh, pick a new show to deep dive on. Uh, this season on impeachment, we've been talking to a lot of the actors and creative people involved with making the show. And this week, uh, Richard, you talked to Edie Falco, who makes her long-awaited appearance. She's shown up like almost silently in a few episodes of the season. And now, at last, we have Edie Falco as Hillary Clinton. She has lines. <laughs> <laughs> she speaks. But as you'll hear in the interview, um, Edie did say that like, this is kind of designed as a small role. So I don't, mm-hmm. I, that, I don't know. Maybe she was, you know, hedging or whatever, because maybe there is a the standalone Hillary episode that people have sort of anticipated, including me, or maybe she's telling the truth. And this is just like her, you know, doing a bit part for the, for this big acting company. Yeah. 
I mean, th- we should say, as I think we've alluded throughout the season, that like we've had screeners up to episode seven from the very beginning, um, and we do not have anything beyond this. So this is the last episode we'll be discussing when we uh, know what's coming next. So that's, I mean, that's it's inter- it is interesting to have followed the story this far. Uh, and in this episode, kind of the, the story catches up with the public record. Um, but I really don't know much about how they're going to wrap this up. I'm just dying to know, does he get impeached? Does he have to leave office? I just no, have no idea. You know? I know. <laughs> does he like punch Ken Star in the face, which is what, what we've all been waiting for? Um, before we get into the episode, uh, as always, we love for you to email us. It's stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We have really enjoyed the emails we've been getting, including some from people who make the show. And I wanted to open with a kind of a sequel to last week. Um, we had been talking about Monica's conversations at Mozzarella's American Grill with mm-hmm. um, Mike Emick, the FBI agent where uh, they talk about how she is being threatened with 28 years in prison. Um, and I had said that Monica herself, uh, I think in a TED talk had said it was 27 years. She's been really clear on that. And so I got in touch with Sarah Bridges, who is the creator of the show. Um, and you heard Joanna talk to her earlier uh, in the season. So I'll read uh, some from her extremely thorough email that she sent. She said, I have been waiting for this question for a long time, and I'm so happy to finally have it posed to me. I should say here that there are many versions of the list of felonies that prosecutor Mike Emick threatened to charge Monica with on January 16th, 1998. Different accounts offer different lists of charges. When I wrote episode six, I ran into a problem because any combination of the felonies Emick reportedly listed could never possibly add up to 27 total years in prison, the number Monica often cited. Uh, and then she kind of runs through the list of possible um, uh, crimes that you hear him list through in the episode. Uh, and then she had her, uh, she said, my researcher, Bayan Wolcott, spoke with an attorney who was well-versed in this area of the law. And that person also indicated that 28 years was a possible total number, but not 27. Uh, so she added up the numbers properly, basically. And I think we all know that uh, anyone's memory can be faulty. And uh, Monica Lewinsky's memory of this really awful day in her life uh, could, of course, be faulty. So um, it's just kind of fascinating that, like, the historical record has indicated one thing. And this show is very true to history in so many parts. And then in others, um, corrects the record, which I think is very valuable. Yeah. And I and I think in terms of um, Lewinsky not remembering specifically, like, I, I'm, I'm, I kind of hope there's more that she doesn't remember acutely about that, you know, like, <laughs> know. like, I know that like, what animals are conditioned to remember pain more, more palpably than they do good memories. But like, I don't know, I hope for her sake that like some of that is kind of a blur that she can not live in all the time. Yeah, to this yeah. day. I certainly yeah, for all the ways that I have uh, blurred out uh, bad moments in my life and chosen not to think about them. I hope she has that power for a much worse day. Um, and then we have one other listener email that I thought was really interesting uh, with from Nick with the subject line, what is the crime? Um, the season has left me wondering, he writes, what is exactly the crime? Or at least what do Sarah Burgess and the creative team consider the crime of the season? Is it sexual harassment, perjury? With the season's focus on Linda, I've been wondering if the show would treat the illegal recording of Monica as the crime, being the only real legal crime Linda commits. But then this past episode, the legality of that issue is pretty quickly brought up and then resolved. So are they using a more broad definition of the word crime to include what might what some might consider moral crimes or is the resulting chaos was a crime against Monica or was it Linda's personal betrayal? And he kind of follows up. I also wonder if maybe that's the point that they want the viewers to parse and decide for themselves what they perceive the real crime here to be. Um, And I would certainly go with that. I think the question of what is and isn't a crime was really central to the impeachment proceedings, which I think we're about to see more of. Um, But it is interesting when you think really literally about the title and how how they fit it into this and, you know, what what does a crime need to be to fit into this franchise? 
I mean, the crime is the hair in the pantsuits, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the baked potato in the microwave. Yeah. Uh, no, I think I think that in, in you know in putting the American crime story you know imprimatur on this sto- on this season, um, it's more I think about the threat of crime, the implication of crime, the subjectivity of that word to some extent. I mean, obviously, when you actually enter the realm of American law, there are literal objective crimes, but um, I think it's used a bit more subjectively here uh, so far. Um, well, I also want to say before we jump into the episode proper that if you're listening to this, you may have uh, listened to us or Richard and Sonia talking uh, very recently about uh, succession. And as a reminder, we are covering impeachment through the end and also starting with succession. So it's a rare uh, couple weeks of double header still watching episodes. Uh, Richard, how scrambled is your brain at this point from keeping track of both of these shows at once? I'm just so excited to talk about I'm just curious what Linda, how she's going to kind of get close to Logan to get control <laughs> of the company. That's what's happening, right? <laughs> Don't you think that Linda thought she was Jerry the entire time she was working in the White House? Yeah, it kind of seems that way, doesn't it? <laughs> I can see a real, uh, like, I can see Jerry wanting nothing to do with Linda and Linda uh, wanting to take Jerry's place and it never happening. I feel like Linda would be referred to all, with almost as much, like, grim joking as, like, Mo is or something, you know? <laughs> This like horrid scapegoat. I mean, yeah. I don't mean to bash Linda Tripp, but you know. Well, yeah, Linda Tripp never did anything as bad as what Mo One Succession is accused of having done. But uh, yeah, I can certainly see them. I mean, maybe she'll get treated better than Connor Roy does, which I think everyone deserves, really. Okay, back to real Linda. Um, in this episode, episode seven is titled "The Assassination of Monica Lewinsky." Um, we get pretty much all of our main characters kicking around. Uh, Ann Coulter is not around, um, but I really think almost everybody else is. And as we said, Edie Falco's uh, Hillary Clinton really enters the mix for the first time. Um, and then there's a lot of names that kind of come by, come and go really quickly. Who, if you have read about Whitewater or any of this, or even some of like Hillary Clinton's subsequent um, quote unquote scandals, you'll remember. So we'll try to get into some of those without getting too bogged down. Um, but I'll start. I'll start simply with Michael Iskoff. Poor Michael Iskoff. What a what a rough week he's having in this version. Um, so we see him in the Newsweek office, that that great old all the president's men Newsweek office, and he is getting ready to publish his story about this affair. His coworker says, this is going to make a planet explode. Uh, and then he goes and meets with his editor, who is Ann McDaniel. And she basically says um, that they're holding because uh, as she says, sometimes it's just not worth being first. Um, Richard, we've talked about how neither of us is like hardcore reporters the way Michael Isikoff is, but uh, I felt his frustration in that scene for sure. Well, the realization that you're going to get scooped is, you know, the, the mounting like just an- anxiety of that is, is something i've known i mean you know nothing that i'm working on typically is like uh urgent it's going to make the world explode national yeah i mean but i mean i wrote something um for the magazine a couple i don't know this summer i guess it was about like home design shows and the trends there um on hgtv and netflix and everything else people can go read it if they want it's called home truths um but as we were in the editing process, the New Yorker dropped a long, like really densely reported feature about HDTV. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, and that was like, not even like, that was just kind of a distant accidental scoop in a way. Um, this where they're like, everyone's aware that this Newsweek story exists, but like the editors are like, nope, we got to hold it. Hold, hold Like that's even more pressingly frustrating, I'd imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then famously, Matt Drudge goes, Matt Drudge has been kind of like hovering over Isakoff, like this like gnat that he wants to swat away, uh, winds up breaking the story essentially as a story about how Newsweek spiked 
story. And um, yeah, it's a media get, story. It's yeah, not exactly. like the direct news. Yeah. Um, and he calls Isakoff at home and his wife picks up the phone and Isakoff pretends to be asleep because they have a phone by their bed, which I, don't, I guess I sleep with my phone by my bed, but it still seems deranged to me that people had landlines next to the bed. Um, like, why, why would you want to talk on the phone? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting when Ann McDaniel says that, like, this is the most respected news magazine in the country or something. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe it what Newsweek was at that point. I mean, obviously, it's come under very dubious new ownership in recent years and uh, has become something much further afield uh, than anything it is in this show. Um, but yeah, it's just, that's just a little, you know, for media geeks or whatever is an interesting time capsule statement. Maybe that's the job of every editor at a publication to be like, ours is the most prominent. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I tell you every week when we're recording the show. We are the right. most prominent prominent television podcast. That's right. um, it's interesting that you don't see Drudge take a victory lap about this huge scoop, but maybe that's something to come. Like, I don't think we're done with him. Um, all we really see is Linda loading the Drudge report on her kitchen computer with that like incredible, like slow uh, web page loading that we were also familiar with at the time. Um, so, yeah, I wonder if they're going to follow up on, I mean, really how he made his name and continues to basically dine out on having gotten this scoop. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it, you know, because at the same, it's it's interesting because, like, obviously, from a sort of base, like, journalistic empathy kind of thing, like, you're rooting for Isakov because he's, like, he has the truth in his hands, right? Yeah. Or at least, you know, uh, enough of it. And um, and yet, it, you know, th- these kind of gadflies and vultures and whoever, however you want to classify the drudges of the world, are kind of, like, picking away at what he has, you know? Um, so you, you feel for him and you're, you're kind of rooting for him in that sense, but also you're like, but I think what this episode does well is it, is it balances that frustration and then shifts over to Monica as like all of her name just starts spilling out into the news, like an oil spill kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh shit. So like, but in getting this story published so eagerly, like, she, you know, we have to then side with her too. So it's a, it's a tricky thing. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of Linda, she is in this episode and a much more uh, minor role than we're used to from her kind of, as we talked about last week, like her, she, she reached the pinnacle of her participation in the story right. and it's, uh, it's kind of all downhill from here. So we see her, um, you know, reading the drudge story. She knows it's coming and she, she draws her kids in for a family meeting and in classic Linda fashion just starts by saying, we're at the precipice of a change. Um, and then she basically compares, compares herself to John Dean, who was the, um, who worked in the Nixon white house and basically, um, you know, helped make. Watergate happened. Um, and she's she's really kind of sadly, I think she's like, well, some people are gonna be mad at me, but some are gonna call me a hero. Uh I really I guess that probably did happen, but I think even as this episode goes on, you kind of realize that um the the warm embrace she was hoping for didn't really materialize. Yeah. And you know, I think in large part because she was a woman, um, and because the this bombshell information was coming out amidst talk about dieting and other mundane things that color lots of people's lives, you know? Um, And so it all got rendered sort of flimsy, you know, like this wasn't deep throat in a parking garage. This was just this kind of quotidian kind of thing. And, and obviously was, that was ripe for mocking on shows like SNL. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the back half of this episode is basically Monica and Linda both kind of hiding out from the press that are surrounding their houses. And you they're both just obsessively watching the news coverage. And we'll talk more about Monica later. But you see her um, kind of watching the news where they're playing audio from the tapes or talking about them. And she's like looking at her daughter kind of for approval. Um, and I don't you know, I think the um, the actress playing her daughter, like, doesn't really tip her hand like she emerges as very sympathetic later in this. But I think already at that point, you're like, Wait, no, Linda, you, no one's going to like 
listen to the tapes you recorded of your friend and like to call you a hero. Like you see kind of the curdling of, of that happening already. Um, and then later there's, you might know what this is, but it's like some kind of Roseanne Barr talk show where she was talking to a Linda impersonator. Do you remember this clip in this episode? I do remember the clip and it, I, for a second, I thought it was Nora Dunn. So I was kind of confused about whether it was an SNL thing, but I guess, yeah, Roseanne did have a talk show briefly I, in this I, period. It, because, yeah, because there's SNL later. So like maybe it was a, also an SNL sketch. I don't know. I was very, um, I was very confused by what it was, but she, you know, she calls this fake Linda a big fat snitch. Um, and, and she was a snitch, man. I don't know. Like I, I feel for Linda very deeply in this whole situation, but there's almost like we've been watching episode of episode of her justifying herself. And in this when she's kind of running into this brick wall where everyone's like, no, man, you ratted out your friend and we're going to like there's a lot of like really terrible, like fat shaming and weird jokes happening around that. But there's a there's a core of her kind of needing to know that what she did was like, maybe not the right thing. Right. Am I being too mean? No, 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 no. Um, I did look it up, by the way. Roseanne did have a talk show from 1998 to 2000. Well, there you go. This was a, a key moment for them. Um so yeah, so after watching all this and she and her kids are kind of like getting psyched up to watch SNL at the end of the week, knowing that uh, Monica will be on there. And I think her son is like, it was going to open in the Oval Office. And then instead it's a, um, it's recreating her lunch that we saw a couple episodes ago with Monica, uh, with John Goodman playing Linda Tripp, which I think we all remember really well. Um, and then she later is like sitting drinking a uh, terrible cooking brandy at the kitchen at the dining room table which is tragic um and kind of tells her her daughter the story and she had mentioned many episodes ago i think early in her and monica's friendship about how the kids would call her du- gus and she told monica that she didn't know but actually she did it was just a reference to her being a gigantic man um which is really sad i that's a, it's a really well-played scene and it made me feel feel bad for linda once again and and it you know it offers further sort of psychological portraiture that helps explain like to some extent, like why she was the way she was at work, like, you know, constantly fighting to assert her place and uh-huh. her prominence and all that. And it's because, well, she, she, she's probably had a lot of her life from childhood on where she's been discounted for various reasons and, and um, has felt like she has to fight for every scrap she gets, which, you know, if you step back a bit, like, look at all of the women in professional industries or anywhere who get deemed difficult or bitchy or Mm -hmm. whatever, because all they're trying to do is be like, look, I just keep, I have to fight for this really hard, much harder than my male counterparts do. Um, And that can color a personality over the years. Of course it can. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Again, I just, I like seeing her daughter, Allison really um, connect with her. They're like, they have this really sweet moment. I think, you know, as, I think as much attention as the show has paid to emerging Linda as a, as a real character, it could have still easily like made her teenage kids just like kind of jerks. Um, and I just, I really like that they've developed those relationships properly because from what everyone has said is that Linda's kids were, were really defensive of her until she died. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, you know, I think that realizing that for all of this that she was going through, that she also had, you know, concerns of family and, 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 and all that stuff going on and, 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 uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's a relief kind of retroactively to look at at this version of things and be like, OK, at least um, at least she had like people in her corner who had nothing to do with this whole yeah. um, system. Yeah. Um, OK, from Linda, uh, let's go to Monica next. Uh, it's kind of is just the Monica and Bill episode and Monica's story is slightly less convoluted. Uh, and they're meeting with Bill Ginsburg, their lawyer, who you last saw screaming at Colin Hanks on the phone. 
um, who is having lunch with them. And I think kind of tragically, given what's happening later in the episode, you watch them like walk into the restaurant kind of calmly and you're like, oh, no, Mm -hmm. this is gonna be the last time you're going to do this for a really long time. I know. Um, So he says, you know, effectively, like, you know, I've never heard of anybody facing charges in a false affidavit for a sexual harassment suit. But then he says, Ken Starr's a maniac and mentions uh, Susan McDougal being held in solitary, um, which I like. So when you heard that line, were you just like, excuse me, who? What now? Did this ring a bell for you at all? I knew the name McDougal as it pertained to like a Clinton scandal from Arkansas, like Whitewater, I okay. guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, and didn't, was it Jim McDougal? Was that the husband? Yeah. Yeah. Or, Jim McDougal. Yeah. Well um, and did he die kind of mysteriously? Was that part of this whole thing? Oh, yeah. He, he died in March of 1998. I actually didn't even get to this, but he was already in prison by the time that that happened because right. he had been the year before convicted of a felony and fraud and conspiracy charges. Um, and she, so I'm going to try not to get too much detail on this because it's a lot of legal stuff and it's whitewater, which is deeply confusing, even as deep into the show as we are. Um, but what she wound up in solitary for was refusing to testify. Like she was called was in by contempt, Star- of court, right? contempt of court. Exactly. So she was in prison for 18 months. And a lot of that included uh, solitary confinement. And uh, in in Wikipedia, it says she was subjected to, quote unquote, diesel therapy, which is, um, you know, being dragged from like different prison, to different prison all along the way. Um, I was just kind of shocked to realize that this had happened, that she had served this kind of really intense time in connection with Whitewater, which was a scandal that I think now historically we kind of look at it hasn't been like maybe not the best behavior, but maybe not like a world ending thing. Um, she wrote a book about her whole experience in 2003 called The Woman Who Wouldn't Talk. So if you, like me, are suddenly fascinated by this, that might be worth reading. Um, but yeah, it's like yet another like Clinton World character from all of this who I was really stunned to refamiliarize myself with in the context of the show. Yeah. And I should say, I said Jim McDougall died mysteriously. I, I didn't, I don't mean that the circumstances of his death was, were mysterious. I mean that people have kind of applied a mystery onto it, I believe. Oh, sure. Like Vince Foster. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, it's just crazy to think that like during all of this, this woman for something sort of unrelated, I mean, related in the sense that it's all targeted at Bill Clinton yeah. or the Clinton family is just like sitting in a jail cell. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And you can find articles from, um, I think salon at the time were like, if, you know, for people who were really furious about the way that the star report was going on the left, um, she was a, she was a figure who a lot of people focused on. Um, so yeah, go learn more about Susan McDougall if you want to hear more about it. Um, but back to Monica, Monica still is trying to call Betty Curry, um, which I just, again, like I said last week, like, please, Monica, just preserve yourself. Please leave them out of this. Um, and then Ginsburg basically warns them, like, the media is going to get a hold of this story. Um, so Monica's kind of like this whole episode, I think they're doing a really good job showing Monica full of dread, like waiting for the word to break about this. Like you see her going out to get her paper and like hiding inside back again. Um, I like, you know, the filmmaking on the show has that I think been more straightforward than the writing a lot of the time, but I think there's some good work in this one to like to show that ratcheting up for her. Yeah, and just the 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 horrible tension of knowing that uh it's going to happen. It's an yeah. inevitability. It's not like, oh, maybe I'll dodge this bullet. And it's like, no, the bullet is headed straight for you. It's just a matter of when it gets there. And mm-hmm. that like, you know, the, the 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 sort of chilly kind of almost like menacing hallway at the Watergate building, you know, it's yeah. just like, and then the little lady with the lap dog who comes mm-hmm. out and she runs away, you know, it's just like, there's such a sinister sort of thing closing in on her um, that, yeah, I think hopefully 
at least somewhat accurately depicts like what that sort of creeping thing feeling was. Yeah. Yeah. So you see her and her lawyer like getting ready to go make the deal with the the FBI, with the star team, and they they can't make a deal. Uh, there's this great scene where Monica is like hanging in the hallway while her lawyer's in there screaming. Um, and he's like, I don't even know who the guy is, but he's like trying to make small talk with her and you feel so bad for her, like stuck with this drip. Um, and then they come out and uh, Ginsburg shows her a printed out version of the Drudge story. Uh, and that's how you learn that it's out there because he someone went to a printer and printed out DrudgeReport.com. What a time. The printed websites. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so for the rest of the episode, Monica is really just in her bunker and just mainlining the news. Like she sees her horrible Pentagon ID photo uh, show up on the news. They did, a, I think, a really nice job recreating that very famous photo um, with Beanie Feldstein. Um, and she learns that Revlon has taken away her job offer, which makes her really sad. Um, and then you kind of later in the episode, it cuts to inside a a TV newsroom control room. Um, and you hear this guy, like a segment producer or whatever saying, we'll lead with her childhood, Beverly Hills fat camp, her parents divorce papers, which is a really succinct way of getting into how much they invaded, um, invaded her life. And the guy comes rushing in with the tape of her waiting on the rope line to see Clinton after the 1996 election. And she's kind of watching that and like sees herself clearly for the first time. And she's, you know, to been to varying degrees, clear eyed about how, you know, intense her behavior around this relationship has been. But I don't know. Can you imagine anything worse than kind of like seeing your relationship from the outside via cable news? No, I certainly can't. And, <laughs> and I think the, 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 the sinister insidious way that, um, it's just a woman at, at, among many other people at a meet and greet kind of thing, you know, and they don't have to contextualize it. any, you know, the, the, when they put the photo out, they don't have to contextualize it. They'll just, you know, let people infer, you yeah. know, and they know that. And I think that, 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 that is a pretty um, stinging indictment of uh, certainly how a lot of news media works or worked then and still works now, you know, just that kind of like, we're not saying anything. We're just, we're just, yeah. we're just, we're, you know, this is a photo. This is a newsworthy photo mm-hmm. infer with it from what, what you will. And I think that, um, you know, knowing that they were absolutely crafting a narrative around Lewinsky that um, at least as the show shows it like was completely inaccurate or not completely, but, but, you know, at least not the full picture. Unfa- um, like unfair, like focusing unfair, in on yeah. all the worst aspects of your life, which I think would happen to any of us if someone tried to do that. And then making connections that aren't necessarily there. I mean, you know, like you see the frustration of her mom watching the thing, you know, be like, but he was a jerk to you. Like what they, they don't, they're, they're just acting as if these men are these sort of like, perfect or at least like just upstanding decent guys who sort of hurricane monica came blowing through their lives yeah and like reliable witnesses right like right they obviously have a um a dog in this fight to promote themselves um yeah she's so like heartbroken that everyone she's ever met is just waiting for wolf blitzer to call and i was very struck by this because i was like wolf blitzer like the situation room guy but at this time like he was like he would have been the person who was on tv talking about monica lewinsky um and you see, you get a lot of the comedy part of it, too, because I think, you know, the TV news is like, well, this is just newsworthy. But you see Jay Leno, you see Dave Letterman, you see this kind of fictionalized TV writer's room full of dudes. And they're all so obsessed with making blowjob jokes. Was this the first time anyone had ever talked about a blowjob in public? And that's why no one could restrain themselves. It's almost like childish when you look back at it now. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it, it totally is puerile and, you know, just in just kind of embarrassing, like. Uh, 
I, I don't know where we were vis-a-vis blowjobs and culture. <laughs> I mean, obviously, like <laughs> someone please write in existed, like, about their you know. history of blowjobs. <laughs> but like, certainly, to be able to so openly talk about sexual matters as they pertain to the president of the United States, I think that was unprecedented. You know, yes. Yeah. Um, obviously, there were jokes about JFK and Marilyn Monroe for decades, and and various other things like that. But that was not discussed. But what you know, in, in sort of like formal settings. But once it that sexual act became a matter of like legal record or whatever, then it was like, well, again, it's just newsworthy. So that's all, yeah. you know. And they everyone gets to be like, well, can you believe that she would do such a thing? It's just like she's the first like she sure. just got so sh- associated with that one act as of like no, no other adult woman would ever dare do something like that. Like, right. Oh, everyone's so gross. Um so you see this like parade of people from Monica's past coming out. And then you see the high school teacher who she really opened up to Linda about a couple episodes ago about this guy who really, um, he played the late miss soundtrack for her in the car, Richard, like what could be more romantic than that? And he had read the book. Remember she says that. <gasps> Can you imagine? Yeah. Um, so he gives this press conference where he talks about how he'd had an affair with Monica and he was obviously very sad. And then he and his wife were trying to heal and Monica wouldn't leave us alone. She has a history of twisting the facts. Um, and I don't like, I don't know the back and forth of how this worked, but it's just, you think about the abuse of power involved in sleeping with someone who was, who you taught, even if she was an adult by the time they started a relationship, which I think is what he's claimed. Um, I just like, like, I can't believe the guy did a press conference. Like, couldn't he have kept his, couldn't any of these people have kept their mouth shut, but especially this guy whose behavior was like, not exactly sterling in this situation. Well, and I think that what what it further kind of shows or or is is what it doesn't show is that, like, we don't know that this guy is coming forward to, like, defend the Clinton administration. But I certainly don't think that's what was happening. Yeah. And so you start to ask, like, what are the motivations here? Like, what what are people like? Why is Monica being framed this way um, as a sort of crazed villain or something? Is that all just knee jerk defense of a man of the presidency of what? And I think that, like. The answer is all of those and none of those. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was just opportunism from all angles. It was good opportunity for comedy. It was always a political opportunity for the right. It was uh, a personal fame opportunity for these guys coming forward, you know. And what's lost in all that, of course, is Monica herself. And there's just no thought put to her, really, yeah. from any of these people. And that, I feel like, I mean, if you want to get subjective about crime... <laughs> That's a crime in, in the sort of lowercase c sense to me. Anyway. Yeah, that's a crime, true. A crime of humanity, you know. Um, well, if you want way more on this side of the story, I was fascinated to learn while while Googling that um, the teacher's wife, Andy Blyler's wife, uh, who was now goes by Kate Nason. They got divorced um, like two years after all of this. She has released a new audio memoir on Audible, kind of talking about this period in her life. Um, and she had found out that her husband had been having an affair with a coworker like the same day that he learned he'd had an affair with Monica. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds rough for her, truly. Um, but the fact that she released her audio memoir about this, like as this show was airing, um, you know, a couple weeks ago is, is fascinating. Was Lucy and Goldberg behind this? Oh my God, she might be. I should go dig into the, like, um, not a masthead. What do you call it on a book where you see like the publisher page? Anyway, oh, um, this is another thing. And next week we stay tuned for the sequel and we find out if Lucy Ann was involved. Um, okay. To close up, close the loop on Monica, she does eventually strike a deal with, um, with the star team and she sees Jackie Bennett and Mike Emick, maybe, maybe for the last time, I would assume their role in the story is done. Um, and then as the episode ends uh, with Bill Clinton on TV, which we'll get to in a minute, it ends. The final shot is her crying on the bed, which is, I guess, probably the only way yeah. you can in this episode. Right. Yeah. 
I wonder, I mean, I'm sure that the series, as it nears the end, uh, we have, what, three episodes left, um, will, you know, Monica will be a constant in that to some extent, and we'll probably see some glimpse of her after all this. But, like, the story does really shift. It, it becomes Monica the media entity and not the person yes. and, and the Clinton administration fighting this impeachment. So I'm, I'm curious to see, like, this final shot of her crying in the bed, like, where we'll see her next in this in this that's, show's version of things. That's a good question, because what she's going to be doing for months and months and months is what she did in this episode, which is hide out, you know? Like, the story of her restarting her life, I think, is really fascinating, but that doesn't happen until the impeachment part is really done. Yeah. Um, that's a good thought. I'd be sad to lose more Beanie Feldstein, but maybe um, that's where the story needs to go. Well, if we're going to be talking about nothing but Bill Clinton for the next few episodes, let's get into it. Um, so the episode starts with him. He's preparing for his State of the Union. Um, and Bob Bennett offers to, to brief him on the list of women. Uh, and he says he's ready. So he goes in for the Paula Jones deposition. And we get a brief glimpse of our friends, Susan Carpenter McMillan, played by Judith Light, and Paula Jones, played by Annalie Ashford. Um, and Susan gives her this, this little pep talk, which... I know you can tell me how hollow this feels. She says, just think that a little woman like you can sit across from the president of the United States, look him in the eye and get justice. Uh, did any of that happen in this deposition scene as, as we see it portrayed on the show? I don't know. Um, but it's also just like so cold and calculating on Susan's part because they don't give a fuck about Paula. No, you know, or don't. her or her little puny Arkansas justice or whatever, you know, like that is she is but a cog in this and they know that and they've kind of done everything but tell her that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then these little moments of like, no, this is your story. This is your moment. It's it's not like here. Okay, now here's your walk on role. You'll serve your duty, and then we'll forget about you. Not the not the walk on role in designing women. Anyone was looking for at the beginning of this this whole right. saga. And and you have to assume that like Susan at all knew that she that 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 Paula was not going to walk into that room and quote get justice that yeah. day. You know that wasn't going to happen. This was I mean, about trying to entrap him in lies. Yeah, and so. I think this this Not scene catch him in lies. Yeah, sure. Um, this scene is really fascinating. I think a lot because of Clive Owen's performance, but also the fact that she's sitting there for half of it and he won't look her in the eye. And I think they they really go out of their way to show how he's not looking her in the eye. So she's kind of sitting there at the end of the table, just like shrinking further and further into her fancy power suit. And um, you just know that she's she's like this is not this is not what I wanted. Like it hasn't been what she wanted for a long time. But this is really not the justice that anyone was promising her. Yeah. And again, you know, the show has done this a few times now where it, it, um, you know, if you want to kind of make the show allegorical to other experiences that have, you know, really been talked about a lot in recent years, like this is why, you know, not that something at this level with the president in the room or whatever, but like that kind of gaze and that sudden kind of cold bureaucratic uh, assessment of what happened to you is one of many reasons why women choose not to come forward with yes. you, know, you know these things because yes. this is terrifying and 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 basically it's all up to you to constantly relive and retell your thing to to potentially more and more skeptical people people who probably have to be skeptical for legal reasons you know mm-hmm. but like that's an incredible hardship and um you know no amount of kind of hollow pep talk is going to help that yeah um, yeah. And in this scene, I think we're really given the opportunity to marvel at how well Bill Clinton could lie. Um, and I, I, I'm sure the video of this really exists somewhere. I don't know how close it is to reality, but what, what Clive Owen's performance in this really tracks with my sense of Bill Clinton and how casual he is, but how he like walks into the room and shakes everyone's hands and thanks them. And like, you know, you know that even in rooms with celebrities where like they walk in the room and every 
the, the molecules of the room change. Um, and he knows he has that power and he really uses it to his advantage in the scene to kind of just skate past and lie directly into the lawyers yeah. and into the camera lens, right? Like fully lie. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't meet a lot of politicians. Like I, I think I said on this podcast, I met Al Gore once at a VF event in Cannes. Um, mm. And uh, I told him a, a story of the, you know, when the 92 election, my mom had friends over to watch the returns and she made roast quail because Dan Quayle was going to get beaten. <laughs> and he laughed at that. And I was like, I made Al Gore laugh. And then one time I also at, a, at an HBO thing because she was working on girls. I met Malia Obama. Oh, who yeah. Not, who not, herself is not a politician. But I have to tell you that, like, as someone who is pretty skeptical, speaking of skepticism about politics and politicians, uh, you know, on both sides of the thing of, of the aisle, so to speak, um, they do have this like, m- I mean, I'll speak more about Al Gore than Malia, but like this magnetism that in the moment you're like sure i would you know i would i would say yes sir and follow you you know like like and that is cultivated obviously and a certain kind of person rises to that level of political power mm-hmm. um and for a brief second you don't necessarily you, you you maybe wouldn't see the the sinister thing or the deceptive thing behind it because and like you know i think it's crucial that in this scene you sh- they show you doing what bill clinton arguably did best which was work a room ingratiate uh-huh. himself to people kind of have that aw shucks charm uh, and then go about doing something incredibly like uh, wrong, essentially, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And this is like, I have, I guess I have met fewer politicians than you have, but like, you know, having interviewed famous people, like I think about, I interviewed the rock for like 10 minutes in person and a, he was like twice my size and B like has that like magnetic force power. And I guess our, our cover story is that where he talked about maybe running for president, which is not why I bring it up, but the people who can use that charisma have a ton of power in this world and can get away with a lot. And I think, um, this depiction of Bill Clinton is doing a really good job with that. Speaking of how ingratiating yourself to an audience, look how seamlessly you worked in that plug for a VS new cover <laughs> issue. Please go read the story by Chris <laughs> yeah. right now. Um, I will say the sequence ends right before the title comes where uh, uh, Clinton goes back into the White House and there's a portrait of George Washington on the wall looking over him. And I was like, okay, all right, I, I get it. Like he could not tell a lie. I, I understand. <laughs> I didn't know if we needed quite that moment, but it was a small thing. Uh, so the next time we see Bill, he brings Betty Curry into his office. Betty, who I, I think we maybe talked about this before. Like, we, we really like Betty. Like, she's been really nice to Monica, even when it's been her job not to be nice to her. And this really powerful scene where he kind of sits her down and it was like, I need you to refresh my memory. You, rem- you remember me and Monica never being alone. And Betty kind of immediately clocks what's going on. Um, I think it's a really well acted and well filmed scene of um, the kind of effortless lying. And, in, and I don't want to call it intimidation, but like, he, he's pulling something off without ever having told someone to lie for him, which is not a skill Monica had and not a skill most of us have. Right. And, and something that he crucially reiterates later in the TV interview. Mm-hmm. Where he's like, I never told anyone to lie. Yeah. And it's like, yep. that's true in in like in, in to the letter. That is yeah. true. Maybe not in spirit. But um, and yeah, you just see how careful uh, and adept these, you know, certain people are at at that exact kind of like, let me bend the the reality to 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 my benefit but almost kind of hands off do the bending you know yeah yeah so we we go we get him really flawlessly getting uh you know reshaping the truth with betty and then the next scene we see him and he's uh black and blatantly lying again to hillary in their bedroom like he kind of wakes her up in the morning to to break the news to her effectively like he's reading a story about um I can't remember which aspect of the story is in the paper, but anyway, he kind of like gives her the rundown. Like they're saying I had an affair with Monica and 
she's so here again Edie Falco emerges and maybe uh right after this we talk about the scene we'll hear your interview with Edie Falco um and she's just like is there something you need to tell me like really straightforwardly and you I I think you kind of see in her eyes like I don't know if I buy that you didn't really have this affair but she kind of gives him the chance to come clean and he doesn't take it and you almost wonder like what might have happened if he had yeah, I mean, she, you know, you know, something I talked about with Edie Falco in the interview is that she's like, at least as she sees it, she's like, this is not the truth. I'm not playing like Hillary Clinton as we know sure. her in real life. Like sure. I'm playing a version of things. And but so let's just say in this version of things, yes, there is a complicated dynamic between them, a complicated understanding between them. But I do think, at least in the context of this show, that when she's like, did you do something? She really is giving him the opportunity to at least confide in her. Yeah. You know? She's like, let me, it would just help if I knew exactly what, what actually happened so I can then, armed with the facts, um, you know, plot the best course for all of us. Yeah. Um, and you see that, like, some that these people were flying blind. I mean, there's a scene in this episode where it seems like Clinton had no idea there were tapes. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he, was it the interview he did? Uh, it's either after the interview or after the deposition where someone mentions the tapes and he's no, like, it's, not, it's oh, after the Jim Lehrer interview. It is where, okay, yeah. and it's like so they like like it it does help to have all the information, and so like Hillary in this scene is like asking for the right thing, clearly. Yeah, uh, but it's and not she and even though he won't level with her, she kind of jumps into action. She's like, "All right, get out of bed. Like we're gonna go figure this out." Um, and that's kind of always the best version of the relationship I've hoped for between them. You know, they stay together; they're still together. Like I think she has a really practical streak um, and would have helped dig him out of this mess, even though it's going to wind up hurting her so much, I think inevitably. Um, All right. Well, let's, let's listen to your uh, interview with Edie Falco, who's playing this version of Hillary Clinton. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker radio hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Well, I am absolutely thrilled uh, to be on the line now with one of the stars of impeachment, Edie Falco. Edie, hello. Hi. Hi. Nice to be here. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot to talk about, but um, we're kind of starting a lot of these interviews asking people what they remember from that time. Were you someone who paid a lot of attention to this whole story? You know, I did not, actually. Uh, I Had I been then who I am now, I would have, insofar as being a bit of a political junkie. But... Um, uh, but, but, but uh, but I was less so at the time. So I was aware of it. It was sort of in in the air, but I was not uh, fully cognizant of it. No. 
Yeah, which I guess would kind of make it interesting to delve into the world of this show. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm curious about when this opportunity presented itself. Like, what was your what were your reasons for wanting to to be part of this and play this role specifically? Uh, let's see. Uh, it came it, it, quite some time before I did it, more than a year. It was mentioned to me that uh, that uh, Ryan in uh, Ryan Murphy was interested in using me. And I, uh, you know, I didn't know what that meant. It was there were a lot of things floating around at the time. And then they said he wanted to speak with me. Um, We spoke on the phone. And that point, I realized I am actually considering playing Hillary Clinton. Like, I really (laughs) I don't know. I I wonder if I gave that enough thought, frankly. Um, But I mean, of course, it's daunting. Um, for anybody, but also because I am someone who respects her so much and cannot imagine uh, the pressure of just being who she is in the public eye. Um, So, yeah, it was it was nerve wracking. And I don't know, I think it was also COVID. So, you know, how many steps are we from actually doing this? I just never really knew. So, yeah, I I, I guess I kind of stepped in it a little like not really knowing when or if it would happen. And, you know, there were a lot of questions in the air. Certain point when I was going to fittings, I realized, holy crap, I really, (laughs) I really am doing this. It's real. Um, Now you've played um, real people before, um, but maybe none quite as well known as Hillary Clinton. Um, What does, are you someone who does a lot of research? Are you watching videos to get speech patterns, right? I mean, how, how does your approach to playing someone who we've all heard speak and, you know, maybe seen in person many right. times. Um, I, I don't, the truth is I don't, I have played a lot of real people. This is of course the highest profile real person I've ever played. But um, um, the truth is I would way prefer not to play a real person. It's not something I enjoy as much because in a perfect world, we're telling a story, not necessarily a story that people know with people that people know. So they come in with some preconceptions as to what the story will be like and what the people will look and sound like. You know, I prefer to start the whole thing with a blank slate. You don't know these people and you don't know the story. And so I can create all of it out of my imagination. So given all of that, I agreed to do this job. But, um, I, you know, Hillary Clinton in particular is someone who has been imitated and impersonated on every platform by every, you know, person who does such things. So, um, you know, without giving it a ton of intellectual thought, I definitely didn't want to do that. I didn't mm-hmm. want to be another person they could put on a, a reel of all the people who have played Hillary Clinton. So I was way more interested in just telling the story from the point of view of a, you know, a woman, intelligent, thoughtful, married to the president, and what this story was like for her. So uh, Hillary Clinton has been in my world and all of our worlds for many, many years, and you can't help. It's like knowing the words to a song you don't remember ever having heard before. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just always been there. And that's a little bit of my feeling about Hillary Clinton. So I, I, I don't know. I didn't really want to go in there and make sure I sounded and looked and walked and, you know, just like her, Uh, you know, between the hair and makeup and and, uh, clothing. And and these people who worked on the show were so diligent and well-sourced and hardworking. Um, 
I've, I felt well covered. In fact, you know, insofar as people were, weren't going to say like, who's this, who's this lady? You know what I mean? Right. But I kind of just, it was, it was more for me about uh, portraying her interior life. Yeah, because it's not a reenactment. It's sort of it is an imagining of things. I mean, I That's think right. that the broader show might be trying to do st- some, you know, corrective in terms of like, res- you know, understood history, you know, we're seeing more from the perspective of people who didn't get a chance to speak their piece during That's the right. whole scandal. Right. Um, so I guess in, 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 in your view of Hillary, I mean, d- 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 does your work on the show? Are you trying to show us something different about the or is it really just like, it you know it's it is that interior for you you're not commenting on hillary the real person no, so much no yeah. no 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 yeah. this is, this is not my interpretation right. of hillary it is my interpretation of the writers and producers interpretation <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> right like right. i i uh, i am not telling the story or or portending to have pieces of the story that the public doesn't have um, I'm just sort of a cog in a very large wheel. Um, I guess part of it was that certainly as I have grown up in a culture that knows this story, I certainly have had to wonder, like I maybe I imagine other people have wondered, like, what was that like? What was the home life of these two people while all of this was going on? How did she make sense of her husband her place in this marriage, her place as, as a person in, 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 in the American public or in the world public. Um, and everybody knows what's gone on in her family. Like, well, I just wanted to know what were those conversations like? My God. And the truth is, we still don't know. But this is certainly a possible interpretation of what some of those conversations were like, what the feeling in the home was like, that kind of thing. And that was, I think, the main reason I, I was interested in doing this was to allow a possibility for what that might have been like. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a nice companion piece in that way to the Lucas Nath play. Um, uh, what was it? Uh, Hillary and Clinton the, with uh, Laurie Metcalf. I don't know if you I saw that. See, on Broadway, I didn't but see it. it. It's a similar thing where it's like we're not trying to like re- completely reenact history. It's just an imagining of what might have happened in one room right. at one point. Yeah, exactly and, right. I think something that's so interesting about way, the way the story in the show is told, especially as it um, pertains to your character, is that, you know, we're here talking about episode seven of 10, and we've seen glimpses of Hillary. Right. But this is the first episode where she really kind of steps into the light and starts making decisions, yeah. um, you know, in terms of how to handle this thing that might already well be out of control. Sure. Um, so I- I'm curious, particularly in the scene in this episode where you know, Bill has come to Hillary and told her, like, this is, you know, here's the news, this is what's out. And then later, she kind of makes a decision. She's like, I'm supposed to give this kind of innocuous press conference about, I think it's children's education. Why don't you come and speak to the public, you know, right. and use that opportunity? So can, can you talk me through a little bit, like, what do you think the character's mindset is? Why does she make these that that pretty big choice? Uh, you know, again, trying to imagine like treading water in a situation like this, where he is running, he's got the most important job in the world, arguably. Um, And she is his wife, his, you know, a big part of his support system. This is an agreement she made. Yes, she agreed to be married to this man, but this is an agreement she made to the world, to the country, you know? So uh, it felt a little bit to me like she needs to put out fires right now. 
and how to deal with the long game is another story. Like, uh, you know, do the next right thing is what it felt like. Like she was just, you know, a little bit like whack-a-mole, you know, she's not taking right. this, then I'll do this. And then, I'm, and I'm sure mixed into all of that is, um, you know, some idea of, you know, what will this mean for our political future, mine and his together, mine and his separately. But I, but I think a bigger part of it was just how do I get through this moment, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I think that, we we feel that mounting desperation where I think, you know, I think it's in this episode where Bill kind of confides to someone else that he's like, I've really fucked things up. Like, like this is, this is probably beyond most repair at this point. And, and so to have Hillary come in and be like, okay, here's what we're going to do. There is something right. kind of com- almost comforting about that, you know, right. and maybe that's a reflection of how their political or their, their sort of marital life, but also their political life has existed in the past. Right. That's right. And I feel a great obligation to say that this is an imagination of of this, you know, I mean, based on certain writings and certainly Jeffrey Tubin's book and all that. But um, I don't want to to uh, give even the slightest impression that I know that this is how any of this went. Right. right. You know, this I had a script and that's. (laughs) You know, if it wasn't about Hillary Clinton, it would have been about someone else in this circumstance. You know what I mean? But it's just um, it's a guess. Well, within that guess. So, um, you know, we'll frame it. It's a character. You're not playing the the person. Um, How do you how how did you choose and and maybe in tandem with the writers and the directors uh, to kind of calibrate? Hillary's suspicions. I mean, you know, she's confronted in, in she's woken up with this news. Right. And she very patiently says, well, if something did happen, it's better for me to know. Like, right. but, but obviously there's something kind of undercutting it. So how, how in your, your mind have you kind of balanced her, her wariness and her love and her sympathy and right. her kind of, you know, all that. Right. Again, this is my imagination of what she loves her. You know, there are a lot of variables here. And I, I never come at any of this stuff from an intellectual place. It's always in trying to describe it to someone else that I'm actually thinking about it for the first time. You know what I mean? Right. Um, in that part of my brain. So I, I'm guessing it is like she she loves this man. How much does she love him? How much does he trust? Does she trust him? Uh, you know, when was the last time they they, they spoke about such behavior? Um what does she believe about this particular situation? Uh, what causes her less pain to believe right now? You know, it is like a split second uh, um, analysis of all of those facts that makes her come out with that. You know, we're going to go with, you know, this is what we're going to do, you know, based on the fact that you're telling me nothing happened. Again, feeling like she's just got to deal with what's in front of her. The long game will 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 suss itself out over time. Yeah, and, and it's it's reactive, I guess, in the ways that like actors have to be reactive. You know, it's like okay, I can only accept what's being given to me, and then we can move with that. You know, that's um, right. Yeah. That's um, right. Speaking of of actors and acting, I mean, you have this incredible scene partner in Clive Owen, yeah. um, who you know that's another high wire act. You know, because like you said, a lot of people have done Clinton impersonations. He's right. doing something different. Um, yeah. So I'm curious about what that working relationship with was like, and if you'd known him previous to this project. No, we I, we just met on the first day of shooting, 
And it was funny because he said to me, luckily, nobody knows who these people are. So we're OK. I'm like, <laughs> clearly him having him having the same trepidation I did as we stepped into this, you know, very daunting task. Um, he was so lovely. He was so lovely. Such a nice, uh, fa- uh, smart, talented, kind man who um, took the job very seriously, was very professional, but also not you know, unapproachable because of that. He was just great. I really quite liked him. Um, Obviously, we work in very different ways. Um, He had a longer trip to take, you know, both, first of all, he lives in London and he is British. So between his accent and not having grown up in this country, he had a lot more um, ground to cover. But he was definitely going for a much more accurate physical portrayal Mm -hmm. Of Bill, And it's something I, in the beginning, was concerned about. And I was basically told that um, that it's okay. That, you know, as long as we play the truth of the scene, everyone will know who everybody is. And, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't I actually don't know if there's a rule about these kinds of things. You must look and talk exactly like them or. But um, if there was a rule about it, I was never really um, told it. So (laughs) the fact that we came from different places, I hope we're still able to um, tell the story of these two people that people know. No, I think it's actually a really interesting mix because, you know, I'm sure you've met many politicians over your career. I've met a couple and they have this sort of otherworldliness to them that, Mm -hmm. you know, they kind of loom in a different way. I mean, Hillary herself was obvious is obviously a politician too, but like, I I think that the kind of that Owen not being American and kind of, like you said, coming from it from a different distance, that, that kind of works well for how these people might exist in the public eye, I guess. Interesting. Good. Yeah. Um, and I, I also curious, you mentioned, you know, that, that this was being, this was during COVID that you were filming this. And, you know, I, I've acted a num- asked a number of actors and directors and, uh, about their experience uh, shooting under those conditions. Um, can you speak a little bit about how you found it? Was this your first project back, you know, yeah. since the pandemic started? It was my first project back and I landed in L.A. at the height of its. Um, uh, what's the word? Like the surge or the surge, second yes. wave? The or... height of the surge in, in one of the surges in January. Yeah. I, I think my overarching feeling is I don't ever want to do it again. Yeah. Uh, you know, shoot during COVID. And I started to realize what I love about my work were a lot of things that I did not have access to during COVID. The socializing, the sitting around behind the scenes, the sitting around with a bunch of people around the monitor, watching what people are doing, the gathering around the craft service table, um, the laughing that, you know, all it, the social aspect of being on a set for some reason makes it easier for me to focus on the actual work when we're doing that part. Don't understand that, but I only understood it because I didn't have it this time. Uh, and I actually thought to myself, wow, this is considerably less fun under these circumstances, you know? It's like uh, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's yeah, kind of what it I felt do. like. You know, I mean, you could, we were masked and shielded and PPE, you know, to within an inch of our life, which kept us all safe. And I'm grateful for that. Uh, but it was odd circumstances to be doing this kind of work under. You know, if you work for the reasons that I do, it, uh, it, it was a it was a weird it was a weird circumstance. 
Do you think any of that, like, rigid protocol and in some senses social isolation, maybe silver lining helped kind of inform this character at all or your sort of portrait of her? Do you see her as isolated like that? Nah, I mean, maybe, but I'm afraid I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like that connects for me. Yeah. Um, It seems to me the, you know, trying to give words to a process I don't understand, but it's from my vantage point, the way I work, it's really just purely from imagination. You know, I, I, in fact, if it's actually, if it's too close to my real life, I tend to not be able, I, those are parts I turn down, mm. you know, like uh, I, I'm a cancer survivor for a long time ago. And, you know, for a while I kept getting scripts of women who had cancer and I was like, yeah, can't do it. Absolutely can't do it. It was, it was like, but yeah, but you really know what it's about. And I was like, that's why I can't do it. Um, you know, I could do it now with 20, 20 years of, of distance, but uh, I need to have a particular perspective in order to be able to portray something. So the fact that I was feeling sort of isolated and cut off would not have informed Hillary. It actually would make it harder. Oh, interesting. Okay. I mean, that's, reason, that's me. No, I mean, I, I think I think I get it. I think, you know, in my profession, people tell you to write what you know, and that can be helpful sometimes. But also, I think a lot of the time for me, it's easier to write about something where I actually have to kind of, you know, reach if for you're it. writing I guess. a story based on your imagination. Yeah, I, would, yeah. I don't know. I, then it's then it's in a story from your imagination. I Um, Well, I know that you probably can't divulge any details, but I'm assuming we will be seeing more of Hillary past episode seven. Yes. Okay. That's all I'll say. Good. I I, 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 I say this to my friends as well. This is a story of Linda Tripp and Monica Lewinsky. Yeah. Primarily. And the people around that story. But, you know, Hillary, uh, uh, Bill, and certainly not Hillary. It's not it's not her story. So that said. Like, my friends are like, I saw the first episode. You were hardly in it. I'm like, yeah, I'm hardly in the whole thing. I told you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a different series if you yes, want the totally. Hillary story. Exactly. Right. But, you know, hey, look, it shows the, uh, the incredible, you know, sort of pedigree and the reputation of this American crime story series that they sure. can get someone like you to play, you know, not the lead, I guess. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah, to, you're part of an incredible ensemble. Oh, which, good. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, well, we can't wait to see what else is coming uh, for for your version of Hillary um, yeah. on the show. And again, thank you so much for talking to us. I really appreciate your time. Oh, of course. Pleasure. My pleasure. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh, my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheik. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.
So then Bill Clinton's terrible day kind of continues. Uh, we meet his press secretary for the first time, Mike McCurry, who uh, continues to be kind of a big DC fixture. Uh, and then Sidney Blumenthal, who, again, like when you actually, I don't know if they ever name him by his full name in this. Um, but is, when you hear that name, Richard, you're just like, hang on, that rings a bell somehow. Um, yes. I mean, that's certainly a name that, uh, was always kind of in the ether of political talk at that time. I mean, I wasn't paying that much attention as a teenager, but I know he's also been remained, uh, right. An influential kind of advisor or something to the Clintons. Is that right? Yeah. So yeah, he was worked for the Clinton white house and then has been an advisor to the Clintons. Like it may very well be to this day. Um, he was a senior advisor on Hillary Clinton's 2008 campaign. And then she kind of, uh, he was, I think blamed for doing a lot of the anti-Obama rumor spreading uh, that happened during that campaign. Um, And then he shows back up connected to Benghazi. And again, like Whitewater and Benghazi, both extremely complicated. And I don't want to get into it too much, but he became. (laughs) You don't want to rehash Benghazi on this podcast? Could I rehash Benghazi though? (laughs) Like, I don't know how. Well, just watch the uh, Michael Bay movie. (laughs) Yeah. John Krasinski was deeply involved. Um, but so there was a there was a house hearing where um, some of the people questioning her like really centered it on Sidney Blumenthal, who she had been talking to when the Benghazi attack was happening. So anyway, he's just like been the guy who if you are an anti-Clinton conspiracy theorist, you will zero in on him eventually. Um, but I guess maybe it's a it's kind of nice to see him as uh, caught on the back foot as anybody else with this whole scandal unfolding. Like, we just got to say something like, can you please tell us what we can tell the press? And uh and Clinton kind of like barrels through. He he keeps his interview with Marliason and Jim Lehrer both that day because he's about you know about to do the State of the Union. Um, and lies to Jim Lehrer and uh, basically says like there is no improper relationship and um, and he thinks that's going to be the end of it, right? Like he thinks he he's like he said my he's like I said my statement I'm done and then he learns about the tapes. Could he have gotten away with it if he if, if he could have been able to leave it there? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think part of this episode and, you know, later on, uh, there's another scene where Clinton kind of has to be like, I really fucked up here. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that like this is and I think that's what's what's an interesting part of the scene with Hillary is that like she's like w- waking up to a new truth. And it's like, all right, let me figure out like let, let's let's approach this tactically and practically. And and. And you kind of think that Clinton, who's such a smooth kind of guy, like has it under control but you realize scene after scene kind of an amounting way in this episode you're like no he doesn't like he has committed to one lie that is can be easily picked at and that's all he can do really at this point and yeah you know yeah no i want to i want to talk about that scene where he finally opens up i want to very briefly mention that uh helen thomas who is a really long time white house press corps reporter um it was kind of famous for always being in the front row she you see her in this bright red jacket which she was famous for um I just like that she appears in that as a, and I think they they call her out by name Helen at some point. So, was it the? I want to say it was Colbert's, uh, White House correspondence dinner roast, where they did a pre-tape thing of like Helen Thomas chasing him through a parking garage, but she oh. was this little old lady, <laughs> yeah. so she's moving like really slowly, but he's yeah. like screaming. I think it was him. Anyway, yeah, that that seems about right. Um, no, she had an incredible career, so good for her for for having a a moment on the show. Um, okay, so then Dick Morris uh, is the person who is brought through the back door of the White House, um, kind of after this terrible day of interviews. Um, 
And so he is another fascinating person. He shows up on Slow Burn, um, the podcast that we've uh, referenced many times. Um, he had been uh, he'd been an advisor to Clinton since he was governor of Aust- uh, governor of Arkansas, um, and he consulted him on his. Um, oh, he was a campaign manager on the 1996 reelection campaign. But as he uh, references briefly, he had to resign two months before the election because he um, it was revealed that he had solicited a prostitute, but also allowed her to listen in on conversations with the president, which is wild. Um, so anyway, he's quite a character and he was conservative. Like after his time with the Clintons, he became a big conservative voice. Um, he apparently uh, made this huge prediction that Mitt Romney would win in 2012 in a landslide. Um, mm. And then after that, Fox News wouldn't bring him back on because he got it so wrong. Uh, but in this in this scene on this show and possibly also in real life, he is the only person who Clinton will admit the truth to. Um, and he basically says pretty early on, I fucked this up beyond all recognition. Um, and it's such a relief to see him tell the truth. Right. Like after yeah. all the obfuscating that's happened through this whole episode. Yeah. I mean, from a dramatic like writing standpoint, like it is a kind of necessary catharsis to like have the habitual liar just like let it all fall down on him and be like, look, I just like. It, I can't keep this up, at least for yeah. this moment in this room. I need a little respite from, from lying you know, to everybody. trying to spin all these plates and lie to everybody and my wife and the country and reporters and deposition, you know, de- people deposing me. Like, you know, it's all just very like, um, you know, I don't feel for Clinton, the person in real life in this <laughs> moment. But at least in terms of the immediacy of this character in this scene, there is at least some like relief there, yes. um, even if that relief comes in the form of saying like all is lost. Yeah. Um, and his, his motivations throughout the scene. So, you know, eventually they get to the point where it's like, you can't admit to the affair because then you admit to perjury and, and you'll lose everybody. If you do that, he comes with these polls, but he also says again, that like he can't admit to it because it would destroy Hillary. And I still just like, I, he may very well have said that, but it still feels like such a funny, strong motivation to give him that like Hillary is kind of the, like, big moral center that is motivating him to kind of dig his grave deeper does that does it track for you i don't know i mean i i feel like i i feel like there isn't so much focus in this show and probably for good reason on like the the tenuousness of like american identity and like the presidency must be upheld as this noble thing. I mean, Linda talks about it. It's in there, certainly, but at least in the characterization of Clinton, to me, it all just seems sort of selfish and scrambling. And like mm-hmm. Hillary becomes kind of like, you know, you have two, two generals have to turn the key at the same time. And then, you know, she comes out <laughs> like she's the, the last thing, you know. Um, but, uh, but, you know, what, what ends up happening when he relies on Hillary is that she gives him pretty much his biggest platform to date to say to lie again you know yeah yeah well yeah so that's that's where the episode ends is she and cindy blumenthal kind of concoct this plan which i i think the episode presents it as a good plan it seems like it was a good plan it, it produces the extremely famous i did not have sexual relationship relations with that woman quote which i think most of us would have forgotten happened at an event promoting after school programs <laughs> like these poor yeah. i don't think there were actual kids in the room but it's, a, it's essentially about kids um so they basically just like they don't make it a special announcement you know they she walks into the oval office kind of all powerful and says that mccurry the press secretary wants him to do a live address to the nation um so by hijacking this existing event basically he gets to do the same thing um and then kind of get out there and and lie uh in the most visible way yet but maybe not for the last time um yeah. and one yes yeah, sir go ahead 
I thought an interesting thing that I, cause I, cause you, you know, you always hear the clip. I did not have sexual relationships relations with that woman, but he pauses and says, and then says, Ms. Lewinsky. Yeah. And I didn't remember that he had said her name specifically in that address, but yeah. he did. And I think that that matters somehow. I can't really explain why it either kind of minimizes her more or at least gives her a little bit of the dignity to not, to not be just that woman. Yeah. At the same time, it's another public utterance of her name and thus making her that much more infamous yeah it does it felt to me like him trying to give her a little bit of dignity um even but and the media didn't by just kind of making it that woman throughout the entire time um i was really struck in that scene by so so edie falco i think looks more like hillary clinton than i would have expected like she looks Mm -hmm. like herself she's famous um but her voice is really not all that changed at all in these previous scenes where we see it's her talking to to her husband but i feel like in this scene where she's speaking at the lectern i hear the hillary clinton cadence come out of her in some way it's really interesting i don't it's a really interesting choice you know i think the show we see a lot of varying levels of altering people to make them sound and look like the people who they play and i i I think her middle ground is really interesting because it it lets her as a performer kind of do what she do, does best without putting too much on top of it. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, she talked about this a little bit in the interview, but like also we've talked about this um, in seasons past of American crime story shows and other, you know, based, you know, docudramas about real life figures is that a lot of actors, you know, increasingly like, yes, you can win accolades for getting the prosthetics and nailing the voice and the, and the mannerisms and all that. And that's impressive in its own way. But I think, a lot of actors prefer to try to just capture the spirit of someone mm-hmm. versus doing um, outright mimicry. And I think that, yeah, in this scene, um, some in, you know, sort of ineffable Hillary Rodham Clinton-ness kind of does emanate out of Edie Falco, which is interesting to watch. Yeah. Yeah. And this might be me, a real monkey's boss situation, but it made me think that the Hillary biopic would be interesting. Like, I don't think yeah. we're ready. I don't think we're ready for it yet. But well, it's, it's going to be what James Ponsult and Mary Elizabeth Winstead, right? Oh, oh yeah. For um, like one about her in at Wellesley and stuff. I yeah, think right but, after school. Yeah. yeah, I think like because she was in D.C. like during Watergate. Um, right. No, that yeah. would be fascinating. Um, yeah, I think we'll get there. She's she's a she's an important American historical figure who maybe we need to get a little more distance from 2016 before we can re- reckon with. Or they'll turn that Curtis Sittenfeld, you know, alternate history yeah. book into a miniseries for something. That, that book was fascinating. Um, I, again, not for everybody, like not everyone wants to dive deep on, on the Clintons, but I yeah. found it fascinating. Have you read American Wife about yeah, sort about, of about Laura Bush? Sort of That's a really Laura. interesting book. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, we should just have Curtis on the show and talk about first ladies. Um, all right. Well, as we said, we have not seen episodes past this. So this is the first time we've done an episode and we don't really know what's coming next. Um, I liked your prediction about maybe Monica receding to the background of the story a little bit. Is there anything else that you hope to see, think that they're going to do where you think the story should go? Uh, obviously to the historical record, but beyond that. Well, I was trying to think because, you know, you, you, there were so many new kind of pe- uh, figures introduced in this episode, real life people. So I was kind of, I was thinking about like who else is yet to enter this, you know, ecosystem was like, Mm -hmm. is it Newt Gingrich? Is it, you know, I I don't really, I'd have to like go back and read everything about, you know, because we're going to get into the sort of congressional aspect of this pretty soon. Right. Yes. Um, And uh, so I'll be curious to see how that takes shape because that is a, is a lot more maximalist and zoomed out than, than we've done. A lot of the show has been interior rooms and, private conversations and yes, a couple shopping mall scenes, but like we haven't like really had um, 
the public stage quite yet. I guess this press conference is kind of the beginning of that. So I'll be curious yeah. to see how the show handles that new scale. Well, I'm looking at the uh, list of, you know, kind of recurring actors on Wikipedia. And um, well, uh, near the end of the list was Patrick Fischler as Sidney Blumenthal, who we see show up in this. But um, there's someone to cast and play uh, Al Gore. He was around at this point, right? Oh, yeah. I guess he must have been. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's kind of wild we haven't seen him yet. Well, he's mentioned there were like Al Gore could be president at the end of the day, like yeah, exactly. you know, by the end of the day or something. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm I am actually really don't know anything about what Al Gore's role in all of this was. Um, and maybe it was to keep his head down and maybe become president. And that's what we'll see. But uh, I'll be very interested um, to kind of see how they would capture that relationship, because um, I think it was probably really complicated at this point. Well, we'll be back next week. We'll be talking about episode eight, whatever it has in store for us. And uh, Richard, where can people find you in the meantime? I just have a lot of websites to print out. So <laughs> I'm going to be doing that. I'm going to print out from Twitter.com where I tweet at Rylaws, from VF.com where I write reviews and stuff. But yeah, just a lot of, I just have to, I have to find a printer first of all. Yeah, I got to buy, go buy some paper. Yeah. And then pick up my websites. Uh, Katie, where will you be until episode eight? Well, I'll be sitting at my dining room table drinking some brandy. I bought it five years ago to make some cookies, but it's still good. So I'm, I'm fine. It doesn't um, go bad. No, absolutely not. Um, and you can find me tweeting at Katie Rich uh, and at VanityFair.com and uh, with you on Little Gold Men and lots of other places. And this episode, as always, was edited and produced by Dave Gonzalez. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now 